Hi, everyone. It's Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree, the global investment and merchant bank. Kindred Media is a diversified media advisory and investment company that works alongside content creators in the audio and digital communities. For more insightful content, including our podcasts, newsletters, and events, and to get in touch with us, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening. Today, on the occasion of Kindred Cast's 100th episode, we're very pleased to present a conversation that we have wanted to have for a long time. Dr. John Malone, the legendary businessman, philanthropist, and conservationist who serves as the chairman of Liberty Media, Liberty Broadband, and Liberty Global, sits down with Lion Tree founder and CEO, Arya Borkov, for a comprehensive discussion. The Cable Cowboy reflects back on an incredible career that shaped the content and cable industries on a global scale. Dr. Malone also shares his thoughts on happiness in the midst of a pandemic, the state of play in the media and the frothy markets that we're seeing, and as one of the world's most astute dealmakers, his greatest hits and some very interesting misses throughout his career. Now over to Dr. Malone. Hi, everyone. I'm Arye Borkaf, and it is an honor to be joined for this very special and timely 100th episode of our podcast called KindredCast. For years, I've wanted to have the opportunity to speak on this platform with our special guest. And so today, I welcome Dr. John Malone, the chairman of Liberty Media, Liberty Broadband, Liberty Global, to this virtual fireside chat. John is also the reference shareholder of companies like Discovery Communications, Charter Communications, Live Nation, Formula One, SiriusXM, and has influence over the broader communications, technology, and media industry. John, thank you for sitting with me today. And it just took a pandemic to give you a little bit of time so you would uh, devote some time to this conversation. So I appreciate your being here. My honor. The honor is mine. So you've been fondly called the cable cowboy by the media industry for decades and the media broadly for decades, and helping literally to reshape the cable and content landscape to what it is today and with a uh, strategy that's heavily focused on cash flow and intricate corporate structures. And and many CEOs have tried to replicate it and we've advised many of them and not many have uh, hit the mark exactly, but uh, they all reference your teachings and your experiences. And to make this very relevant for many of the CEOs and industry pundits that are going to be listening in, there's a great book by William Thorndike that I gave to my firm a few years ago called The Outsiders that referenced eight unconditional CEOs and their radically rational blueprint for success. And they referenced CEOs like Buffett and Tom Murphy, who you know, and Catherine Graham. And you are the subject of chapter four, based on your creative approach to capital allocation, management tactics, and uh, your unique leadership personality. And so we're going to get into about what makes you successful and what people can learn from those approaches. But you started working in beginnings of really what it is the telecoms industry, which I would point to as being kind of Bell Labs, which was the precursor to AT&T. And then you were famously frustrated and went to McKinsey, uh, the consulting firm, and then went to General Instruments. From there, you decided to join the TCI right as it was in bankruptcy and needed advice on how to emerge 
from bankruptcy in an innovative way, and thereby sparking a wave of consolidation and scale plays in the cable and content industry. I'll stop there because I know you try to keep a low profile and you're very humble, but you also are a world-renowned land conservator and preservationist, as well as a philanthropist across many pillars of education and scientific advancement, which has inspired me. And you've been a significant mentor to me personally, a business builder and a leader that I've admired my entire career. And I've been grateful that I've had the benefit of working with many of your CEOs that obviously you're familiar with. And people always ask me, how are you so close to John Malone? And I said, you don't really get close to John Malone. You have to earn your stripes by doing business successfully with John Malone. And then someone referenced, well, he did call you something very special in an article in the New York Times a few years ago. And I said, what did he call me? He said, he called you a honeybee. And you did actually reference me as the honeybee of the TMT world flying from flower to flower, cross-pollinating ideas. So <laughs> I'll hold that dear to me. So thank you. And let's get into it. But thanks for being here, John. I appreciate everything. You betcha. <laughs> so uh, you have an important milestone coming up in March where you're turning 80 years old. I see that you look healthy and vibrant. So take us through like taking stock in your life as you turn 80. And I know a lot of your friends are reaching milestones now as well. And what does it look like for eight decades into Earth here? It has a happy life look these days. Well, you start with, with a wife. We've been together literally. I taught her how to drive a car. She was 15. I was 17. I had a 1954 Jaguar that I had bought as a wreck and had restored. And uh, that's what she learned how to drive. And so I can't complain about her driving. And she's actually a very good driver, better than I am. That's a lot of years that we've been together. How many years? Well, I would say we've been very close since 1959. So what is that? 62 years? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Married for 59. You know how that is. She completes my sentences. Grateful that we've made it this far. Reasonably good. Off. A few incidents over the years. But uh, you start there with a great relationship and good health. And great kids that I'm very proud of. They march to their own drummer, but I think they have great values and I'm very proud of them. Business has been like a, a fabulous roller coaster for me. You know, I've met some of the greatest people I enormously admire. They're my heroes, really. So I've had the privilege of knowing, meeting, being partners with, being mentored by, being competed with, frankly, some of the great entrepreneurs of our century. And so that's been a wonderful experience. You go back, whether it's Rupert or I still remember Bill Gates came to see me with a six pack of beer and a pizza when we negotiate a contract. He told me one time, he said, John, forget about hardware. There's no piece of hardware that can't be emulated in software. And damn, I should have listened to it. You know? <laughs> one of the wonderful periodic things that I've had the privilege of attending is the Sun Valley Conference. And I was at the very first, along with Rupert and Barry Diller and Bill McGowan. And some of those relationships have lasted all these years. Sitting down after hearing Bill Gates describe his new company that he's going to take public and sitting with Warren Buffett and having Buffett ask you, would you invest in that? 
And I said, hell, I don't know, Warren. I don't see the moat around it. I don't see, you know, how they defended it. It's probably pretty good, but isn't he going to have a hell of a lot of competitors? You're talking about Microsoft and you thought they may not make it. Yeah. Well, I didn't know if they could defend the business from competitors. You know, I'm not sure how good a business it might be. So there you go. Hopefully Buffett uh, made his own decision on that one. Well, no, he agreed with me. He says, yeah, he said, uh, you know, I'd rather stick with things that I understand. What did we know? You know, you live and you learn. But what a great introduction to TMT. Now, when I went to Bell Labs, summer of 1963, and I was put on a project. I had two projects that summer that I was put on. One was a project called Picture Phone. How are we going to get television over these copper wires? <laughs> and then for a while, I got to be a coder. You know, everybody wants to be a coder these days. Well, I was a coder on the first effort to make a digital switch. ESS number one, Sakasana, New Jersey, uh, was Bell Labs' initial digital switch. You know, think Cisco. And I worked on it with a small team. We probably had five or six people trying to write the code to run this digital switch that summer. And uh, I went away to graduate school. When I came back the following summer, that whole department had moved to Indian Town, I think it's called Illinois, yeah. had thousands of people try to write code. So we learned that writing this uh, software stuff was a hell of a lot more intricate and required a lot of coordination. Once you went past three or four people working closely, it took an army. Yeah. <laughs> all kinds of documentation. So that was my early experience. We have plenty of stories, but wasn't there a story that you told me that you actually wrote a paper and proposed a leverage buyout of AT&T or Bell Labs? No, that was later. At the time that I came back from graduate school, so I had a, a background, a little bit of economics and this thing called operations research, right? Modeling, large-scale modeling. So they asked me to build a model of the Bell system to be used to argue the case as to whether or not Western Electric should be severed from AT&T because there were people claiming that uh, AT&T, because it owned the manufacturer of hardware, was overcapitalizing and using that to drive rates. And so I wrote this article, which got published in the Bell System Technical Journal, called Profit Maximization in a Regulated Firm. Okay. And I literally got to present it to the board of directors of AT&T at 195 Broadway, the old headquarters. As a young man, I got to spend the better part of an hour in front of the board explaining what to a modeler, to a mathematical model, what AT&T really looked like and why the case the FCC was making was wrong. And you were probably in your 20s at the time, right? Oh, yeah. I was probably 26, 27. And I got walked out of the boardroom by the, the then chairman, arm on the shoulder. You know, son, that was great. Very interesting. And then he said something very discouraging to me. And I got on the subway to go home. We lived in North Jersey in those days. And I filled out my resume on the way home and sent it out. And I ended up at McKinsey. It was a pretty dramatic change from being a PhD computer scientists, such as it was in those days. Wow. Amazing. Thinking about and reflecting on your life, actually, one of your CEOs that we're close to, David Zaslav, this weekend, thinking about your birthday, sent uh, an article around by 
Canaletta that he wrote in the mid-90s, actually. There's a quote that I read from the article that took me back and it says about you, in his business life, he, meaning you, strives for pure logic, unalloyed by emotion, unswayed by friendship or sentiment, and he hates political noise. So you've always been sort of uncluttered in your thinking, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm glad Ken saw it that way. He was very gracious to me. I, I really appreciate the point of view. And I know he attended a meeting that I had with Rupert at the time. So he got to write about Rupert as well. So he got a twofer out of that. He was very kind. But, you know, you basically, if you think in terms of mathematical models, which is sort of the training that I got in, it really fit me pretty well, fit my personality. Leslie, my wife, she says, that's how I am. Uh, you know, she says, your whole life is solving the traveling salesman problem, which was my PhD thesis. So you think in terms of models, the mathematical models, and you try to come up with heuristics that simplify and make it easier to make decisions. And when TCI was really in its growth phase, and we were trying to delegate really to do M&A to guys who had zero background in it, we tried to make it very simple. If you can fill in the following four blanks, you can go ahead and close the deal. <laughs> We don't need investment bank. There's launch velocity. And my dad, who was an engineer, he always said there's two approaches. He said, first of all, whatever the problem is, try and guess at the answer. Try and develop your instinct and then use all these techniques that they teach you in school. And he said, over time, you will train your intuition to where you can probably guess the answer better then the technical method can come up good enough as an engineer for all practical purposes, right? Yeah, just don't stay neutral. Don't get paralyzed. <laughs> no, that's right. And, uh, you know, you're always trying to force a decision to a conclusion. Perfection, you know, accuracy, precision is for uh, accountants. Good enough is okay for engineers. Yeah, and business people. But, you know, my whole career was just an endless series of lessons, of learning lessons, being exposed to new problems to solve, whether it's ECI on the verge of bankruptcy, or once we got out of that perilous situation and we started to do acquisitions, learning the skills of being a good acquirer, putting yourself into the shoes of the other guy. It may not be that he's looking for the top price. It may be he's looking for a job for his idiot son-in-law. It may be that he's got tax issues or he's got a divorce problem. So you try to take a holistic view when you look at optimizing business. And that's really what it's about. Problem solving is optimizing businesses, optimizing business structures. You set the objective. The objective is maximizing shareholder wealth in a reasonable time frame. And then you set about to look at what dials are that put you in that direction. That's how you try to ideally approach creative advisory businesses. But I've also read and listened to you, if I'm correct, reference some Talmudic inspiration over the years, right? And you've drawn from the Talmud. I this great... Look, my life has been just charmed with wonderful mentors who were virtual fathers to me. But I had one at General Instrument, Moses Shapiro. 
He was the toughest. He had been a labor leader, right? And boy, could he tear your ass off if he didn't like something you were doing. But he told me, he said, uh, John, he said, when you analyze, always ask the question, if not, always challenge your assumptions, always look at the downside. So let me go try this. But where am I at if it doesn't work, if my assumptions are wrong? Do I live to fight another day? Do I have a bank or the IRS sharing the pain with me? Do I have enough juice left to come back if I make a mistake? So it was that kind of thinking. And, you know, I benefited from this. Bob Magnus, he was a fabulous friend and mentor to me. I loved the man dearly. So I had those wonderful relationships through the years. I was very close with Rupert for a number of years. Enormous respect for the man and his skills. And you try and learn. You know, you try and learn from your relationships. Even Sumner Redstone, who at times was a pretty difficult guy. He was the first guy that sued me personally for over a billion dollars. So you have to respect him. <laughs> the first guy. <laughs> but fundamentally, he was a hell of a good businessman. Yeah. To watch him maneuver his way through, beat us. In acquiring Paramount, we lost to him in Paramount. And watch how he was able to maneuver to win that acquisition. You learn a lot from, well, from very smart, very talented people. Well, Sumner obviously has just passed away, and but Rupert, I'm sure, would say the same thing about you. And Barry, and in the recent podcast we did, has said the same thing about you and many others that they've learned a lot from you as well. Well, think about you know the relationship with guys like Ted Turner which was quite a learning experience because, you know, he was fundamentally a good businessman and very creative. But his personal style was a little off-putting to some people. Or a guy like Jack Welch, another fellow who just passed away recently, but it was a wonderful teacher. You can't make this stuff up. These are larger-than-life individuals that I have enormous respect for and tried to learn by example by seeing what and how they did things. You know, it was kind of a coincidence that when I was at McKinsey, we did the restructuring of General Electric, which ultimately led to Jack Welch being what it was, a small corporate headquarters with principal function as resource allocation. Hell, that was us. <laughs> that was McKinsey. Well, the coincidence is not lost on me. I am uh, very fortunate and grateful that I get to learn from you as we go. And, and others in the industry that came before me and that I continue to work with in the business. And it's one of the most proud moments that we get to work on deals together. Well, you know, you get into some situations with people, take a like Barry Diller. Look at the career that guy's had. Incredible. He's so creative. How fortunate I was to recruit him, you know, after he had worked for Rupert, had built the Fox Network for Rupert had tried to uh, create a roll-up using QVC, you know, went after Paramount, then he went after CBS. And at that point, he lost support of a major shareholder. But while he was on the beach, he said, what do you think I ought to do? I said, well, I would take a boat ride. <laughs> Little did I know that I was sending Barry on a love affair with yachts. <laughs> the, but there you go. The only way I was able to attract Barry, a guy with his, that was to say, hey, Barry, I know your history. You built a lot of businesses for people, but then at the end, you don't own them. So somehow or other, 
we'll figure this out. Here's a proxy. You know, as long as you want to build it, you get the votes. It took, I don't know, was it almost 30 years before we finally ended up trading him control of IAC and then Expedia? That's right. But it all worked. This was all in the genes 30 years ago. Well, he said he learned a lot from you in the last podcast and talked about his strategy of growing companies and spitting them off as they mature within IAC. You emailed me that weekend and said, well, where do you think you learned that from? <laughs> well, he's an enormously talented guy. And uh, if he learned anything from me, I'm very proud of it. Yeah. But you know, part of it is having wonderful relationships, wonderful CEOs, wonderful business managers. I love stability. I mean, one of the best things of still being in somewhat control of some of the things that I've helped build is that some of the guys who helped me build those things are still with me. Now, we're all getting long in the tooth. I mean, there's no question that we have a couple of boards that are pretty heavy with octogenarians. <laughs> but isn't it wonderful that you can have lifetime relationships with people and you really enjoy those relationships and they're, they're filled with respect? And trust. Uh, and trust. It's wonderful. It's been a yeah. wonderful. We have young CEOs, which we'll get to in a second. But I want to talk about the state of the world because it looks to me that you're possibly in Florida with the Atlantic Ocean behind you. And obviously, we're all kind of now, hopefully, the tail end of this COVID crisis pandemic. And I know you and Leslie have been very careful and fared uh, well and probably moved very seldomly, but over a few different safe spots. We've talked often virtually, and I'm glad to see you look very healthy. So what is your perspective now coming out of this pandemic? We're basically a year in. You've had a lot of thoughts about uh, the world and coming out of it. We have probably would have thought we'd have the most unifying period of our lifetime when you have a health crisis. We're all tied together by health, but we've kind of emerged more divided. But what are your perspectives coming out of this moment, hopefully? Uh, and hopefully you, know, you are in Florida and safe with Leslie. Well, we've gotten our round of vaccinations. We, we feel somewhat safer. We're still being cautious, and we certainly don't want to spread it to other people. That said, I think the world, thank God for a wonderful pharmaceutical industry and some great research. You know, I think this is going to be a long battle, not a short battle, as these viruses keep reappearing and keep mutating. It would be very nice to think that the world could think about this in terms of working together to build fast response capabilities to build these vaccines in scale and quickly and get them distributed in the future. Because I think we're going to experience this in the future more and more. The tragedy is that it became way too political. Certainly in this country, it became very political, it became too political internationally. And this is when it comes to human health and survivability and quality of life on the planet, we got to grow up. We got to learn to work together with people that we don't necessarily agree on everything with, but we should agree on those things that we have in common. I hated to see the political situation get so stressed out and so polarized that there is no center. For years and years and years, we had two political parties. They fought with each other, but there was always a center. We just don't have a center right now, and hopefully one will emerge. So we have some governance by consensus, as opposed to power plays, you know, which frequently can go awry. 
So I guess that's one observation that I would have. The scientific ability to solve our problems is there. I wish we would spend perhaps a little more as a world, as a country, investing in the research and development of technologies that will solve these problems, anticipate them and solve them. Let's call it that. Whether it's climate change or population density or pandemics, whatever it is. Food supply. Yeah, these are all solvable problems, but you have to have a mentality, a leadership that is willing to solve them. It's a collaborative thing. Science has become extremely collaborative. That's just the nature of the complexity that we're into now. You could have a horror show forward because the skills, these gene manipulations could get out of control. And we could do a lot of damage to the survivability and quality of life on the planet if these things go awry and are used for violence or power, whatever. You know, so the Earth, the planet is still in a vulnerable situation where a lot of people who shouldn't be are in the lab. You know, it could be dangerous. I worry about that to some degree when you talk about lessons learned. But I'm pretty much an optimist that these problems, you know, will be solved. You know, you have to marvel at the technology of being able to land a rover on Mars that can carry a drone. And those are good things, exploring and learning, developing technologies. These are wonderful things. Yeah. Really, uh, if you think about it, when I was at Bell Labs, they were making breakthroughs in integrated circuits. In fact, General Instruments actually had an integrated circuit division where they hired the top researcher out of Bell Labs to try and make a business out. And so this digital transformation has not been overnight. I mean, this thing's been going on for a long, long while. I think Bill Gates and I tried to invent the Internet about five or six years before I was But technology just wasn't ripe. He couldn't make the devices affordable, and I couldn't make the transport capacious enough or unified enough. And so a thing we started that was called Express was stillborn. <laughs> yeah, but the technology and digital transformation and plenty of capital fueling all this is very much here at the forefront. And the markets are reacting to that in a big way. The economy is partially responding to that but divided, right? And so how do you think about the markets today and the economic rebound around all of this? I think these are all fabulous things that are going to deliver wonderful capabilities to the public, productivity. It's a wonderful future. We used to say that what we wanted to develop a technology that would give people access wherever they were in high quality at an affordable price, you know? That was our vision. You can look at my first annual report at TCI, and we talked about a device called Communicom, which was a terminal device that did all this stuff. Now, we didn't have the technology to pull it off. It took 40 years to even get close. And then the problem is that for somebody like me, the vision, you think you have a pretty good vision of where this is going, and you don't have a clue. <laughs> it just gets so much bigger and so much broader than you could have imagined. 
And then you, you got to scurry and try and catch up and see if you can figure out what your grandkids are talking about. It's so fast. You go back all these years. You know, I remember leading a delegation to Apple headquarters. This was pre-Steve Jobs' return. We wanted them to design an interface for us because <laughs> we thought we could develop a digital set-top that would work, but we knew we didn't have the kind of interface skills that Apple had demonstrated. John Scully, remember him? Yep. Solving these problems, identifying and solving these problems is what technology is really all about. Yeah, but and the paradox listening to you is you've always been a cash flow investor and a technology observer, but we're in a growth technology world right now, which is not your investing style. No. And, and I have to tell you that when Clark Perkins distributed shares in such unknown companies, like Facebook or Google, my brokers said, what do you want us to do? Is I think you probably ought to sell them. <laughs> <laughs> no question. My personal conservatism has probably run afoul of the opportunities that the business I was in presented. In other words, the blue skies were much brighter than I ever really imagined or was comfortable with. Yeah. For me, look, a covered call is the way I take risk in the equity market. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. You're much more comfortable as a strategic operator with a capital structure and allocating that capital around a CEO with an operating strategy and a scale play than an investing strategy around a portfolio of growth venture capital. I'm not a stock picker at all. Okay. You're absolutely right. What my mathematics can see, which is limited vision, is a world where I can use leverage and tax deferral and growing cash flow in order to create value. And I'm very comfortable in that world and growing businesses by putting pieces together and synergizing that world. That's the world that I'm emotionally comfortable with. Intellectually, maybe I'm capable of understanding some of these other things, but I would never bet on it. It's too risky. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this industry now because it's changed a lot, right? When you were really growing TCI, the strategy in hindsight was clear, probably fraught with risk at the time, which is rolling up a lot of fragmented cable companies to create scale, thereby controlling the distribution thereby fostering the launch of the content industry and having somewhat of a vertically integrated approach, which created the current ecosystem that we all live in today with the 500 channel quote, and so be it all linear. Incrementalism. My approach to building a business was incrementalism. If there was a problem and I could invest in something, and it could be pretty strange, pretty odd to solve that problem, then I could see the synergies. I could see the demand. I could see investing the money. We tried to build an integrated circuit. We had a skunk works. We dropped, I think, four or five hundred million dollars of our and other cable companies' money in an effort to build to bypass Intel at the time and develop an integrated circuit for our digital platform that would have been revolutionary if it had worked. But it didn't. <laughs> but we try. So I've invested in four different efforts at 3D over the years, venture capital type 3D efforts. 
But I saw the immediate application. I thought, geez, if I had this and it really worked, the matter I could do with sports, for instance. So my personal approach has always been incrementalism. What's adjoining me that would have synergy with what I'm doing? Big fan of a little company called Plume right now. Which, which one? Plume, P-L-U-M-E. I don't think it's public yet, but they invented smart Wi-Fi. They've got real breakthroughs in smart Wi-Fi, which I always thought we can get the big spigot, the big hose to the outside of the house. But once we get in the house, people's actual experience with high speed is less than perfect. Well, these guys came up with a solution and we were lucky that we had an opportunity for the various companies involved in to invest in it along with Comcast. Now we have a technology that I think works really, really well for making our service uh, a better service and a more intelligent service in the home or the business. So those kind of things, those incremental advancements that you can really see how they fit with your business. But when Greg calls me up and says, I got this SPAC, John, and I'm looking at this company and I'm like, okay, what does it bolt on to? <laughs> Who in your Rolodex do you know that can help it? How are you yeah. going to finance? I can see how leverage cash flow, <laughs> raise capital cheaply, and get tax attributes to enhance the returns. So I'm more comfortable buying a hotel in Ireland where the skills that I've learned over the years of that nature than a new technology that I don't feel like I have the background to fully understand. Yeah. Well, what do you think, by the way, of the SPAC business overall? In some ways, it makes tons of sense that Larry did a SPAC, and that's Greg's domain expertise in having capital and doing deals that are fresh and not jointed up with existing assets. But what do you think of a SPAC craze? I mean, there are 400 plus SPACs out there looking for deals and looking for homes. So much money looking for returns. The Fed has got rates so low for so long that you're not going to go into long bonds. <laughs> And equities seem to be pretty fully priced. You know, I'm no expert, but I would say the equity market is tied to the interest rates and looks pretty highly priced if you assume interest rates will revert to normal. So you got to go find some place where you can get returns. And this is big pressure for pension funds, for insurance companies. Where are they going to get the returns reliably that they used to get with a mix of equities and bonds? And now they're scrounging, they're finding it difficult. So a lot of money around looking for the next unicorn, I guess you could call it the next home run. I think it totally comes down to the quality of the management. I've always felt every business comes down to the quality of the management, the dedication, the focus, the vision of the management. And that's why management is almost always the key to success. I always say the first thing, if you're looking for something to invest in, start with the quality of the management and their vision. It's not important that I know the business. It's important that they know the business. I can help them finance it. I can help them shelter taxes. I can do a lot of things with my skill set, but they got to have the vision for the business and the drive and the team building spirit and all of that for it to be successful. So who do you think the best managers are today in the media business? Oh boy, that's a tough one. 
Well, I always start with Brian Roberts because I was sort of his mentor for some period of time. And I think he's done a fabulous job with Comcast, tell you the truth. And his decisions are well thought through and, and seasoned. The TMT space, he's earned a lot of respect for what he's done there in building it. In a narrower situation, Tom Rutledge has done a great job with Charter. He hasn't tried to play a diversified game. He kept his eye absolutely focused on driving the broadband business. And I think he has a clear vision of what's going to work and what's not going to work. And he's driving hard at it. So it's different strokes for different folks. Mike Freeze has been terrific. He is a consummate team builder. And he always seems to be able to find good guys. So I still got a lot of money on Mike. When we brought Dave Zaslav in to take over Discovery, it gave it an entirely new life. He brought not just energy, but a responsiveness to the business. So I think David has done a wonderful job in, first of all, building an old media business. The Scripps transaction was masterful in terms of managing the things you can manage, overheads, costs, the structure, taxes, financing. Now he's challenged with how do I make the move into direct consumer. This is a huge challenge. And he's the man for the job. He's got the energy. He doesn't wave the white flag early. So I think he's terrific. To me, in my experience, it's different personalities for different kinds of business. Greg is not an operating executive, Maffei. He's a fabulous deal guy, financial guy. In his domain. He's really probably the only guy who's ever actually understood me, right? How so? Well, I mean, tracking stocks. Who do you know that's ever been a proponent of tracking stocks? Other you. than me. Now, Greg, <laughs> I converted him. What is a tracking stock? Let me explain that. It's an equity. It's a, a bifurcation of the equity of an enterprise to reflect the equity creation of a particular line. So you're all under one umbrella, one traditional consolidated umbrella. You know, you have one tax return, let's say, and one really one balance sheet, but you have multiple equities. So for instance, Liberty Media right now has three public equities. Sirius that reflects the audio business, including Live Nation, the ownership of Live Nation. It has the Atlanta Braves, which is a pretty clear, well-defined space. And then it has Formula One in the racing business and ambitions to grow it, including an investment in a new SPAC <laughs> that Greg looks at as a license to get out of the immediately adjacent space that would usually find somebody like me, right? But there's also a Live Nation stock in there. Yeah, Live Nation is over in the series. As I said, it's sort of an audio, I call it an audio business, live performance business. Yeah, separate from audio. I think it's an events business. Obviously, Mike Rapino runs it very well, but I think it's a different business than just audio. Doc is sitting all-time highs now because people believe that as he comes out of this pandemic, it'll be a bigger and better business than it's been, which I agree with, actually. I do too. And it's probably counter-cyclical in many ways because people will always want 
to go to concerts in any sort of economic cycle. As I've gotten older, it's all about CEOs that I trust to run these businesses and I support them. I try to be a good coach, a good cheerleader, a little bit of a safety chain, hopefully not too much of a safety chain. And that's kind of been the last 20 years, really, for me. I ceased being a CEO, I think, in 2004. My last CEO job was actually creating Liberty Global, putting the pieces together and then turning it over to my degrees. That was 2004. So that was my last actual public company CEO role. Being an investor and a large shareholder and a director, it's not as much fun as being a CEO. It just doesn't have that instantaneous gratification of feeling great when you make a good move and feeling shitty when you make a bad one, a team and, and so on. It's a little more remote, let's call it. But what do you think about the media industry today? Because even during the pandemic, it's gone from a industry that has had somewhat depressed multiples to now growth multiples. And I've also said putting the plus at the end of the names of the companies like Disney or Discovery have made it, or even Live Nation, have made it like a direct-to-consumer play that the market has endorsed. I mean, the media industry has become a direct-to-consumer play endorsed by shareholders. And now the execution is obviously at the forefront, but we're now in growth mode. If you can transform these businesses into this direct consumer model where you have pricing control and full information in your relationship with the consumer, you don't have to calculate a terminal value, right? It's kind of gains a level of perpetuity as a business that a wholesale business or an indirect business doesn't have. So the multiples that it will command if it's successful are much higher. This transition from the old business, which as it matured, got very profitable and threw off a lot of cash, but had this uncertainty about long term, as people call it, cord cutting or going to alternate distribution technologies and consuming content in different ways off different platforms. The question really is, how do media companies manage their way through that transition? There's going to be winners and losers. There are going to be roll-ups. There are going to be combinations. We're only like in the third inning of this nine-inning game to see what emerges. But it is fascinating to see the attitudes change. Charters probably trading at an 11 and a half, maybe EBITDA multiple now. Yeah. And throwing gigantic amounts of free cash, which they are single-mindedly using to shrink the equity. So the business model there is very clear and very similar to what uh, Mr. Singleton referred to in my style early on. The other stories of the other cable companies like Brian is more complicated. He's got a great connectivity business, but he also has a huge content business, theme parks and everything that he bought extremely well, got into extremely well, has had very good synergies with his traditional business, okay, and has been handicapped a little by the virus here for the last year, but will emerge, I think, to be a good complement to his broadband business, whether it's under the same umbrella or a separate umbrella, who knows? What do you think? I mean, fast forward, not the third inning, but at the end of the day, and it's hard to say, like, the winner, but if you're in a fully unbundled world, 
who wins the broadband pipe or the content company if they have the consumer directly? Charter or Discovery? Well, here's the issue. If the broadband company wins, it gets regulated because it's a physical facility. It's dominant. It'll get regulated if it is a, the ultimate slam bang winner. But whereas the content guys, there's going to be certainly more than one. It's not a physical facility. They can become big and very valuable, but they're unlikely to run into the kind of regulation that we ran into, for instance, at TCI in 93, the re-regulation of rates and so on. And so you always have to worry a little bit about that balance of, are you really starting to generate monopoly profits? Or is there still meaningful competition and alternatives? Those are always challenges into the future. We're not there yet. We're nowhere near there yet. But when you try and go out five or 10 years, if you really are successful, <laughs> you're going to end up with government intervening and regulating you. But I'd say right now, I mean, if you had to guess, you'd say Netflix has got such a huge business now and such an, a lead. It's hard to see them getting caught in the scripted content arena. All things are possible, but it's hard to see anybody overtaking them. I think Disney will give them a really good run for their money because Disney has and controls an awful lot of intellectual property and has a great brand and is a very well-run company as well. So those two guys are clearly broken through the clutter. Then you get into niches, you get into geographies, you get into specialties, you get into, do you want to be a supplier? content factory for the big guys? You know, is there going to be enough niche appetite and demand? Is it going to vary country by country? Those are all the issues. I think we at Discovery, we believe that we have a huge audience of people who love to watch our kind of content. And it's not usually expensive scripted, but it is continuity program and people it's like comfort food, you know? Yeah. You've talked a lot about Roku as being potentially one of the winners. You don't own that company now, but you like Roku. I wish we had bought it. I mean, you know, a lot of people right now in our wish they had bought it. Really. They studied it <laughs> they, and they could have made an offer and they didn't. Yeah. Roku is essentially trying to put together a cable operator like Bundle. And if they can get enough scale, then they'll have market leverage to deliver a content owners to consumers and vice versa. They're trying to emerge as a major middleman. And if they can get globality, in other words, if they can get scale from the rest of the world, I think they got a decent chance of making it and getting to be the aggregator for other than Disney and Netflix. And maybe they'll even be the aggregator, including Disney, in some marketplaces where the scale argues that an intermediary can do a better job for Disney than a direct deal. So who knows? But there's an awful lot of evolution that's going to take place. You know, it's just going to make all these investment bankers incredibly wealthy as they sort out how to put these pieces together. Well, I have a good advisor in you. Mike Fries, whenever he does these great interviews with you, he always closes with a lightning round. I'm not going to make it lightning per se, but a few parting questions to get your views for everybody. How does Facebook and the technology industry deal with government intervention, given your history in the dealing with governments here and regulation overall? 
Well, I would hope they can up with an industry code of what's acceptable and what's not, and then they can honor that, right? That would be the best solution when you're talking about privacy, when you're talking about content that's offensive. Hopefully stay away from politics. I'm a libertarian politically, and I really believe in the Constitution, especially the First Amendment. I think it's terribly important that those First Amendment rights be honored and protected and cherished even, and that these big tech companies do their part in policing it, but protecting it. And there's nothing like an industry-generated code of conduct that they would basically sign up for and keep government out of it. Because once you get government in it, you're going to get into politics. And once you get into politics, the First Amendment is really tough for politicians to deal with. So I'd love to see these guys develop a privacy consensus and let government endorse it and pound people who don't sign up for the standards. But if they can self-police, that would far and away be the best. More likely than breakups, you think? Yeah, I'm not sure what breakups really do. Yes, there's certain players that essentially have monopoly positions that they can abuse in a traditional commercial antitrust way, right? And government is going to have to look at those organizations from an antitrust perspective. In other words, I don't want to name names, but there are some of these organizations that have the ability because of their quasi-monopoly to strangle direct competition for businesses they're in. And in those situations, it may turn out that the government has to break them up, not so much into three identical mini monsters, but into things that are not using their vertical power to uh, damage competition. Let's face it. I mean, Amazon is so big and so powerful that they can squash anybody if they choose to do so. You know, I think it's legitimate for antitrust to be looking at them, looking at Google, looking at Facebook, looking at their practices and looking for commercial antitrust behavior that traditional antitrust should be involved in. But when it gets into content, I just hope government stays the hell out of it. Got it. Digital currencies and Bitcoin. Do you understand it? Do you think it's here to stay? Is it at odds with government currencies? And do you think governments will respond with their own form of digital currencies to dilute the effect of Bitcoin? Sure. I don't know why Jamie Dimon doesn't have the ultimate standard of value, a Morgan. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's only one Morgan and you can buy fractions of it, but there'll never be more Morgans, you know. It's true. So, yes. I mean, I understand the power of having a digital currency for transactional purposes that's global, that's trustworthy, that is so configured as to be very, very difficult to counterfeit or to adulterate, right? The reality is right now, the Western central banks have been printing money like mad. They've been diluting their currency. Like mad, the Fed probably increased the money supply by 25% last year. To simpletons like me, that just means everything ultimately is going to be 25% more expensive. Or worth less. Yeah, exactly right. My knee-jerk reaction is to short the long bond and try to go into hard assets as much as possible. Assets that can survive 
devaluation of the currency. You know, I don't know that we've ever seen this behavior in the West, the Weimar Republic. We've certainly seen banana republics printing money, Zimbabwe and Venezuela. Could there be an agreed to a basket of currencies that I'm sure the Chinese and the Russians would love to have a basket of international currencies and try to force the U.S. to be part of it. We would be giving up a lot as a nation if that were to happen. The fact is all the money, these trillions of dollars that we owe are all denominated in dollars. And so we can't ever run out of dollars as long as we own the ability to print dollars. We can't default. Impossible for the U.S. government to default. They can just print more dollars. We can't default. We can just dilute. We can dilute. And I point out to the younger people on my staff that Leslie and I bought a Volkswagen when we went to graduate school, brand new, fresh out of the showroom for $1,600. Didn't have a radio. But otherwise, it was a very good vehicle. And today that would be about 30 times more expensive. So we've seen about a 30 to 1, a 25 to 30 to 1 deterioration in the purchasing power of the currency during my adulthood. Okay. So when you talk about wealth, that's the number one thing that you should worry about is the ultimate destruction of wealth through dilution of the currency. If you're going to be in financial assets, watch out for that. That's a serious concern. It sneaks up on you. It's sneaky and it accelerates. And pretty soon you're just seeing wealth. Now, the risk politically is that central governments and central banks can see this as a way to redistribute wealth. Just print it and give it away. Helicopter distribution of cash is politically easy heroin to get on. And my concern is that our political system You know, when I saw that there was very little resistance to these massive stimuluses in either political party, it's one of those ones, tighten your seatbelt. Here we go. Because we now owe so much money, we got to keep the interest rate down. Otherwise, the government will be spending all of its tax collections on interest, right? And so how do you do that? Well, you just have to keep printing. And to keep the music going. It's very circular. And very dangerous in terms of certainly the wealth that individuals think they have. So, you know, right now, for me personally, I'm looking at forest land, trees. I'm looking at farmland, like Bill, like Gates. Now the biggest farmer in America, right? Farmer Bill. High quality apartment buildings and corporations that seem to be in businesses that have a franchise that would have pricing power in an inflationary period. And, you know, you can read the journal is now starting to have articles about inflation and do we worry about this? And the 10 year goes up by two or three basis points a day. And you get the little sense that there's just too much money around. Which currencies do you feel are appropriate to have exposure to outside of the dollar? Well, I'm pretty conservative. The Swiss franc. So I've actually personally bought some Swiss equities in Swiss francs. You collect your dividend in Swiss francs and so on. It's not a complete solution, but it gives you some diversity. I've got some euro-based businesses. You know, I've got hotel businesses in Europe that are euro-based and the debt is euro-based, super cheap debt. Mike Fries just went and bought 
Switzerland uh, wireless business. He bought Sunrise over there, which is a Swiss franc based business. And I certainly encouraged him to think that yeah, I'd rather own more of Switzerland. So I bought a uh, Korean ETF recently because I think that Asia and Korea in particular has been less affected by the pandemic than the West. And so they should be seeing some differential benefit out of that. I probably will buy Japanese ETF. Canadian, I've got lots of Canadian equities in Canadian dollars. I bought Barrett Gold, for instance, which is a Canadian mining company. Right? But no Bitcoin. Not hmm? for you. No Bitcoin for you. I really haven't bought Bitcoin. It's extremely volatile, obviously. I praise effusively friends who have bought some Bitcoin and I allow them to buy me dinner. No, I, I look, when Elon Musk says he thinks Bitcoin's interesting and it goes up 20 or 30% a day, I'd say it's following. I don't know. I'm pretty conservative. So I tend to miss out on these things because I am conservative. For me, a good solid investment is go long Comcast and sell a 13-month fall. Right. And if, in fact, you make money, it's all gains or dividend income. So you get a lower tax rate. Right. Yeah. That's just simple arithmetic. Wow. Is there anyone, John, that you uh, haven't met in this world of media, technology, politics that you feel like you long to meet once this pandemic's over and you'd love to welcome to your home or your ranch to get to know a little bit more to inspire uh, your next chapter here? Now, I have to say that, like everybody else, I'm fascinated by Elon Musk. He is a consummate engineer. And so I think he is very creative. He's trying to solve all kinds of problems. Bill Gates, who I still know pretty well, he's that, got that kind of a mind. He's trying to solve problems. He's really an engineer. Bill really is an engineer. And Elon apparently is an engineer's engineer. I don't know never met him. But when I look at what he does, you got to respect this guy. He takes on some big problems. And you know, he had to be smiling from one ear to the other on the GameStop suite <laughs> to watch these edgies, these short sellers get clobbered. He's got to be beside himself. Couldn't happen to a nicer bunch. So he's one guy that, you know, as you know, I know the ex-president. I found the relationship there to be fascinating. I love most of his policies. I really was hoping that he would be the reincarnation of Ronald Reagan because he seemed to have the grasp of the situation that America was in and the ability to attract the common man to understand. Maybe he makes a comeback. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But I found that whole episode really fascinating. Fascinating. He should have just worn a mask. I think if he had worn a mask and played the virus thing, he'd still be president, in my opinion. Yeah. The macho bravado, I think, got the better of him. Had he played it a little differently, a little more empathetically, I think he probably would still be president. Look, we have a country in which Biden was going to win by six and a half million votes, right? And Trump, because the Electoral College might have pulled out an electoral victory and held Biden down to six and three quarter million plurality. 
the real struggle in America, in, in my opinion, if you just look at the electoral, right, you have the people in the cities who want government to be more involved in their lives. And you have the people in the rural areas who want to be less involved with government and more self-sufficient. And this goes back to America, to our roots of the country. And there was always this open space that if you didn't like government telling you what to do, you could move. <laughs> you could go west. America's filled up now. And the population centers are starting to dominate the politics of the country. And the people in these urban settings are expecting and probably needing more government management of day-to-day -day life. And the people in the rural areas resent it. Yeah. They don't want to agree with that. America is going through this transition of the pull and the push of government. And as a libertarian believer in the Constitution, that we got a republic, I fear that we're becoming an imperial capital in Washington and the provinces out there, right? You know, you get into a situation where the public starts feeling about Washington like the Brits felt about Brussels. It's remote. It doesn't understand us. They seem to spill and piss away a lot of money. And we don't see any strategy, any survival or success strategy coming out of them. It just seems that they're in endless power struggle. Yeah. It reminds you a little bit of the collapse of the Roman Republic when too much power is concentrated in too small geographic area. Look at median wages now. Washington is now far and away the highest median wage metro of the country, right? These are not good signs for a true democracy, for a working class, working class distribution of authority and power, for a participative democracy. Yeah. It's going the wrong way. I worry about that for kids. And then you sit there and you look at China and say they got probably, you know, they probably got the most efficient government on the planet right now. They have real strategies. There's nothing like a benevolent dictatorship to get the trains to run. But unfortunately, it always leads to corruption and abuse. The beauty of America, we're always pretty much inefficient as a country politically, but it was our saving grace because we had reserves of energy and wealth that centralized organizations don't have. Yeah. Well, talk about going out west, maybe to flee <laughs> government intervention and talking to the cable cowboy in your honor. I brought my little cowboy hat. Oh, well, at least it's not a black hat. Not a black hat. The good guys wear white hats in the bed, you know, in a true Western. So last night, Leslie and I, thanks to the miracle of digital television, we sat down, stretched out, and watched my favorite movie on TV for about the nth time. What's it called? The Quiet Man. John Wayne in Ireland with Maureen O'Hara. Okay, beautiful scenery, and John Wayne is John Wayne, and Maureen O'Hara was as beautiful as ever, and it was just a great story. There's always Ireland, right? There's always Ireland, and there's always John Wayne, and there's only one John Malone, so I appreciate you being on with us, and I appreciate our relationship. Honored to be uh, your friend and uh, working together, and 
to many, many more birthdays and interactions together. I hope I get to see you in person soon and uh, regards to Leslie and stay well and stay healthy. Well, thank you, Ari. I really appreciate it. I hope you're kind to me in the editing. <laughs> you count on it. <laughs> count on it. <laughs> Take care. Take care, John. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app.